Well, I want to welcome you once again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are really glad that you are with us this morning, especially if you're a guest with us. Uh, I want to welcome you again. We're honored that you would choose to spend a Sunday morning worshiping with us. And we're continuing on in our series where we're walking through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we're right in the middle of kind of our sermon series here, getting close to the middle of the book, which will continue on throughout um, the summer. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in to the text. Father, once again, we're so thankful that um, you've called us to this place. We're thankful that um, we have your word, Lord, that when we um, build our worship service, we, we can build it on your word. We can build it on uh, the revelation of yourself to, to humans, and that's what we've done. And I pray that you would honor that, that you'd be glorified by that. And as we open your word here and begin walking through this chapter in Ecclesiastes, I pray that you would change us. That through the power of your word and the spirit, that you would change our minds and the way we think, that you would change our hearts and what we desire and feel and change how we live when we leave this place, Lord. And above everything else, I pray that your son Jesus would be lifted up and honored in this place today. And we love you, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. There was a movie that came out last year that was up for an Academy Award. Didn't win it, but was up for it. Named The Bansheeries of Inchirin. And this movie is set on a remote uh, fictional island off the west coast of Ireland. Very remote, very kind of hardened, uh, beautiful, but yet classic Ireland, how you would imagine that. And it takes place in 1923, which is um, in the middle of a, of, a, of a civil war that Ireland's having. And the, the movie is centered on two um, men, two characters, um, that are played by Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. Um, and these two friends, one, um, Colm, who's played by Gleeson, and Padraig, who is played by Farrell. And it's just really a, a picture into to friendship and how hard him friendship can be. Because all of a sudden, at the beginning of the movie, these two guys are, are best friends. There's, it's a really small island. There's not a lot of people on the island. And these guys are kind of drinking buddies. They go, to the, they go to the pub every day and have a pint together and just talk and catch up. And all of a sudden, out of the blue one day, Colm says to Padraig, Hey, I, I'm ending our friendship. It's done. And Padraig's like, wait, what? Like, you can't just end a friendship. Like, you got to tell me why. Tell me what I've done. Tell me what's wrong. What, where's the conflict? And Colm says, no, I just, I just don't need you in my life anymore. I've got other things to do. And I want to, you know, he's, like, he's kind of an amateur musician. He wants to, you know, I want to write some music. I want to learn to play more and, and these types of things. And Padraig is just beside himself. He's so frustrated. And you begin to, to feel what he's feeling in the movie. And you're like, yeah, this is this, this, this stinks for this guy. Like, it's awful. It's really, these two guys are super quirky. It's, it, this is a dark comedy, a lot of humor. Um, it does have some language, just to warn you if, you if you do watch it. But it's a really good movie. This, this Padre guy, though, has a pet donkey named Jenny. Yeah, quirky guy. And this donkey lives with him inside of his house in this little kind of uh, um, bungalow on the Irish coast. And he talks to Jenny about this relationship gone sour, and he can't figure it out. So Jenny becomes even closer to Padraig through this, Jenny the donkey. 
Um, and he refuses to accept Colm's request to end the friendship. Like, I guess I'm done with you. He's like, no, 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 we're, we're gonna, I'm going to figure this out. So he keeps pursuing Colm about why is this going on, what's happening. And finally, Colm just gets sick of it. He says, next time you come and talk to me, I'm cutting off one of my fingers. And Padraig's like, what? You're not going to do that. And so he, he's like, man, maybe, maybe it's not, maybe he's, maybe he's bluffing. So he, he goes and talks to him again, boom, cuts off his finger, takes it to Padraig's door and throws it at his door. It's like, there you go. Stop talking to me. And so some time goes by, and then Padraig decides through some, Padraig's had a, some, some things happen to him. He's like, I need my friend. I'm going to go try this again. It's been some time. Surely he won't do more than one finger. He goes and talks to him. Seems like maybe um, Colm's getting a little bit better. And then you see afterwards um, Colm cutting off the four other fingers, oh, three fingers and a thumb on that hand, right? Taking them in a bag and throwing them all against his door again. It's like, this movie is nuts. Like, this is spiraling quick. And, of course, and, and the Padre gets home a little bit later, and the donkey has choked on, or he ate one of the fingers and he died. Because it's not sanitary, even for a donkey. You imagine that. Donkey dies. Padraig is so mad, right? Now it's like he's, he's got vengeance. Now forget the friendship. I'm, I'm burning everything down, literally. So he tells Colm, he has this normal conversation. Hey, at 2 p.m. tomorrow, I am burning your house down. Whether you're in it or not, fair warning, it's coming. You do however you choose. Sure enough, next day, lights the fire. His house is burning. We see Colm sitting in the house still. And then the, the, the scene ends. So we don't really know what had happened to um, Colm, but we see Padre get his dog at least and get the dog out of the house before that house completely burns down. The next morning, it shows Padre with the dog Sammy. They find Colm um, standing on the beach, kind of just, just kind of reflecting, looking out at the ocean, and with, with his burned out house in the background. And Colm starts a conversation by apologizing for the donkey's death. Like, I'm sorry about your donkey. And, um, and he, he kind of says, I guess this, this kind of ends our war, right? This thing. Uh, but Padraig informs him that it only would have ended if he was still in the house. And now, it actually would have only been over if you were still inside that house while it burned. And then there was just this silence. And then Colm makes a comment about, yeah, we haven't heard the guns a long time from the Irish mainland, right, with the war. It's kind of quiet over there, right? And you're like, this is so weird. Um, and then Padraig replies that he's sure the fighting will begin again soon because something, and this is a quote, some things there's no moving on from, and I think that's a good thing. As Padraig turns to leave, Colm thanks him for looking after Sammy, his dog, while, his, while he burned his house down. Um, and then Padraig says, anytime. He just walks away. That's how the movie ends. It really is a good movie. It's beautiful shot, beautiful. It is, it's, a, it's a dark comedy. Um, but we don't know where his friendship goes from there. Right? We don't know where the friendship goes. And I share that story because I think Solomon would it could have written the same thing. Right? And you, and you read um, interviews with the, with the writer, director. He wants to communicate that, one, that friendship is hard. Community is fragile. And oftentimes we don't understand. And little things are made into big things. And it hurts us from having true community. And I think Solomon could have actually written that story because today he, he, he kind of looks at this idea. Up to this point in this book, Solomon is focused primarily on his life. He's taking these different topics and he's, he's, he's asking them in light of these topics, how, what is meaningful? 
how, how do you find value in life? Is it meaningless? Is there something to be had here? And then he, today he's going to turn his attention in chapter 4 to work or the activity we do and how it affects other people. That's one thing we haven't seen a lot of Solomon doing is how what we pursue actually affects other people. And today he is going to do that. You may ask the question, well, why would Solomon spend a lot of time in a book like this talking about work? Well, if you just Google the stats, you, uh, approximately we spend 90,000 hours in our lifetime at work, which is a third of our lives. And when we're, and, and it's not just the work itself, right? It's the people that we spend all those hours around oftentimes. The people are involved in our work. And it's hard even as for Christians not to see work as a, at least a small part of our identity, right? Many of us, most of us, I would say that when we're not at work, we're thinking about work. Maybe even just a little bit, we're thinking about it. Like we care about it. And when we meet someone new, when one of the, maybe the second or third question we often ask people, I'll bet past Nave and maybe where you're from is what do you do? What do you do for a living? What do you do for work? How do you spend your time? If you're a student in here, you're probably preparing, at least the majority of you are preparing, and you're going to school to work for the next step, right? Maybe to make money, to have a career, right? This is why you go to school. When Solomon was said at this time to be the wisest man in the world, um, and so we should listen to what he says, and he's going to talk about work today. And above everything else, community is fragile. It's fragile, and we're going to see that today. I want you to think about that as we look at work, right? It may not be cutting off your fingers and um, a donkey swallowing them that endangers community, like in this movie. Um, But in many things, work can make fragile community, it can endanger that. It can make relationships even more difficult. There's a lot of brokenness around relationships. It can complicate things even further. And, And just a caveat, like I think Solomon is talking about work, but I think this could also be really anything we, we spend our time in, anything we give our time, our energy, our attention to. Maybe our work, maybe not, but the things that, that we spend our time doing. He's going to give us three areas where work can damage community in the first few verses of this passage. Let's look at the first one here. Verse 1, work can damage community in the area of our values, the conflicting values. Verse 1, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So we know isolation and loneliness are not good. We've talked a lot, we talk a lot about community here. But then you throw in oppression to the mix, and this person's really in trouble. They're not in a community to protect them, to advocate for them, to help them, to comfort them. We talked a little bit about oppression last week through the lens of justice and suffering. Um, but I think there's a more subtle angle to look at these verses as well. You may not initially see the work, the connection between work and oppression, but I think it's here. Like, like our economy, if the primary value or goal in our economy is to make money, it's to make money, which is which is not all bad. Um, but when there's a bot, when that's the bottom line, that's the goal. That's kind of what makes things work. It's going to come up against relationships and caring for people. There's going to be some friction here of how do you still make money, hit your goals, reach the bottom line but also care well for people in the midst of that. How do we do that well? 
Because these people, as we know, are created in the image of God. So we need to be thinking about people as well as we work. This includes consumers. This includes employees. This can even include the environment as we work. So there's a friction between the values that we have towards people and the values the world often has in the economy. And that's difficult, Solomon's saying. Something to watch out for. The second thing he says... um, we look at his work and damage the, our community in the area of motivation. Look at verse 4. And here's a, he kind of lays out a spectrum here. Verse 4, he says, Then I saw all the toil and all the skill and work come from, listen to this, a man's envy of his neighbor. So he's saying that at least the thing we fight against as we work, as we do things, is envying other people. That's the engine that often drives us to do what we do. He says, this is also vanity and a striving after the wind, which is his favorite saying through the book. We've seen it multiple times. Basically, it's meaningless um, when, we, when he puts it that way. So why do we work so hard, right? It's easy for us to have po- poor motivations in work. We want to outdo others. That drives us. We have one eye on other people, one eye on our work, and oftentimes that is the thing that keeps us going. The writer of, of, of uh, the, the book James in the New Testament, James says, in verse 316, he says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. That is strong. James is saying, Proverbs 1430 says, It's a tranquil heart, gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Like envy is powerful, and I think it's sneaky. And we don't, I think, realize how often envy is actually motivating us to do the work. Right? And it's not coming from a gospel or godly motivation. It's actually envy. Like even right now, we're moving into the summer as a family, right? And I'm talking to other dads and moms. We're talking about what our kids are doing this summer. And it feels like an arms race to make sure our kids have a good summer, right? This is like suburbia, right? It's like, oh, I'm doing this with my, my, my boys, right? Oh, oh, you're doing that. I'm like, Nicole, hey, hey, we got to, we got to. We, we just, all, all we're doing is a basketball camp at VBS. We need to put all, put, 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 we need to raise our game. We got to get maybe some soccer, maybe some art, science, make sure they're well balanced, right? Oh, wait, you're doing, you're doing that too? Well, what could we, oh, I bet you there's a space camp out there, right? I bet you we could send our kids to the moon this summer. That would trump everyone, right? That's not usually me because I'm, I'm, I'm more on the cheap side, right? It's like, is this a volume of activity or quality? Because I'll find some free stuff this summer. I'll keep them busy all summer to, to, get the, to, to, to get the volume amount, right? Even if I can't get the quality. But uh, that's, that's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but that's me. That, that, is, that is happening inside of me. I'm like, is Jack's going to miss out? Are these three months going to change Jack's and Tate's life if I don't get them, if we don't spend their time right? Like, it's dark. It's dark. But that, that is the suburban Young family world, and don't, don't think you're not with me there. I think all of us are there, have thought that at some point, right? It's hard. It's hard envy when we're trying to do things. It creeps in. And I think it's, it's, it's so um, subtle that uh, I want to go a little deeper here. Tony Morita, as he's talking through this verse, says there are usually three things that are happening. Could be all of them, could be one of them, that are happening when we're envying someone. And this is helpful to really have a diagnostic on our envy. First thing we can do is we fantasize about others. Like we think about them. This is usually kind of where it starts. We're preoccupied with them. We're, we, we usually make them more successful than they really are in our minds because we want to like 
compete with them. We want to look to them. So we, we, we put them on a pedestal, and we want to be them, right? And, and, and we, we, we think about them all the time. They, they take our thoughts. They take space in our heads. That's fantasizing. Second thing we can do, we can demonize. We can demonize others. We, we dislike them, but we're still thinking about them, right? They're taking up space in our brains, right? We dislike them. We, we cheer for their failure, right? When they don't succeed, we're like, yeah, like, not, yeah, we got, you know, we do that with others in our dark places. The last thing we can do is we can compete, right? Everything becomes a zero-sum game, right? We can't just both win. Like, I have to win or I got to be a little bit better than this person over here. And so, again, we have one eye here and one eye on what we're doing. This is the darkness of our hearts when it comes to envy. That's one side of the spectrum when it comes to work and our motivation. The other side is verse 5. Listen to verse 5. Five. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And it's very proverbial, very uh, just kind of throwing it out there, very direct statement. Um, what he's saying here, basically, the lazy person refuses to work, and they, are, they have idle hands. They're not doing anything, and it's destroying them. They're, they're destroying themselves by doing that. So this side over here, you have this poor motivation, and over here, you have no motivation, right? So it's a problem on both sides. This person over here, it affects other people by how they work or their motivation. This person over here affects people in a negative way because they're not doing anything. They're not working. They're not, they're, not, they're, not, they're not bringing anything to the table. And the lazy person is always looking for people to take care of them. And then when they get mad at, they get mad at them when they're not taken care of. Right? This is how being lazy can destroy community and relationships. Proverbs 26, 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. This, this, this person knows, knows what they're doing. They know the way. They, 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 they got it all together, and we're not going to listen to wise counsel, even seven people that come and try to talk them out of it. So we have our values collide with kind of the cultural values. We have our motivations make work difficult, and now we have margin. Work can damage community in the area of our margin or overworking. Listen to verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. He's looking at everything. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he, has, he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. This is the person who is, who is frantically working so hard that he's lonely. Like he's not stopping to ask himself, why am I doing this? Like what's the point? Who's benefiting from this other than me? And there's, the, the, the Solomon's looking at, they're imagining this, this guy, or this girl, and, and he's saying, what, what, what's happening here? Like, they're doing all this stuff, but there's no one around them. There's no, there's no community. There's, they're, they're, they're lonely, yet they're acting like and they're working like there's people around them that are going to benefit from this. Their companions are the trophies and accolades surrounding them and not relationships. This has not led to satisfaction. And Solomon says, why hasn't it dawned on this individual to look around and ask, why am I doing this? Why am I grinding away at work when there's no one around me to benefit from it? Is it affecting the people closest to me for better or for worse in my overworking, in my grinding? Now, we need to hear this, right? This is, this, we're in the hustle culture. Right? How can I be more productive? How can I multitask in a better way? What hack can I use 
technology or and otherwise to get more accomplished. Like this is the world we live in. And we need to hear Solomon and the wisdom here and really the warning is how is work affecting those around me, especially those closest to us. So Solomon lays out these three areas that work can damage community. And now he's going to give us three pieces of wisdom in the following verses that help bring redemption to this work. Okay, First thing, we can bring a different set of values to the work. And this is kind of implicit in those first three verses. But I, I want to share a quote here from Richard Lovelace in his great book, Dynamics of the Spiritual Life. Listen to Lovelace as he kind of talks about um, how Christians should respond to the values kind of colliding between the world and what we should value in work. Christians who assume predominant leadership in businesses can model an economic lifestyle which is not just ethnically righteous. They can direct company policy, not simply to grasp at the largest margin of profit, but to hold profit in balance with the interest of employees, consumers, the environment, and the whole body of society for which the business is a service from God's perspective. Leaders in government can seek not just to serve the economic interests of their people or this nation, but can hold these interests in balance with the well-being of the whole human community. This is not easy, Solomon's saying. He wouldn't have addressed it if it, wasn't, if it was easy, but Saul, what Solomon's saying is we need to think about how we approach work, especially if you have influence. If you have influence, if you're a Christian and you're in the workplace and you have influence, you should for sure be thinking about people. Not just the bottom line. Yes, the bottom line is important. you got to do certain things. you got to hit certain goals, benchmarks. Yes. But you can balance that with how are we caring for people? Are we treating people like image bearers of God and not just widgets in my game to conquer the world and to make more money? There's a balance here that we should at least strive for. Second thing, one of our primary motivations for work can be to build healthy community rather than a poor motivation or lack of motivation adding to the brokenness of community. Look at verse 9. Solomon's following after, uh, following just logically down this conversation. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and is not another to lift him up. Verse 11. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Solomon is saying here, if you're going to work, if you're going to work, which we are, we're going to be active and stuff, um, do it together. Do it together. And this, this, this list he gives us is contextualized, remember, to the, to the Middle East. Right? It's contextualized to the Middle East. And it was more dangerous when you went outside and were trapped. They walked places more than we did. There weren't streetlights everywhere. So when you were out alone, there were dangers. And this idea of physically falling, he uses that word when one falls down, it wasn't just someone who couldn't walk very well for whatever reason may fall down. It was literally like you could fall in a pit. You could get attacked. You could get robbed. And you needed to travel with more people. This idea of lying together, this is some weird, like, sexual thing, right? It's just like, hey, when you're together and the body heat makes you warm, right? So if you've ever been camping out and it's really cold, like, you want to be close to each other. You want to huddle together to keep each other warm, right? It's, it's this idea of, of, of being together, being connected that protects us, that adds health to our life. And this is something that we'll never get from technology. 
it falls miserably short for providing deep friendship, deep companionship, camaraderie that this passage um, describes. This is an embodied life-on-life presence that we're supposed to have with one another while we work. So the goal is to have those relationships while we're working, and it benefits everyone. So rather than being envious of others, we can want others to succeed. That's another part of working together, right? We become cheerleaders for others. We should rejoice in others' successes, learn learn from their, their successes. And then we go about and do our own work well. We can be a team. We can do those kinds of things if we have the proper perspective. And verse 12 is just one of those, um, I got your back verses. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, yeah, two will withstand him. Yeah, that's better, two on one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken, yes. Right, that's a very popular, you probably heard that kind of proverbial phrase said before, but it's really in the context of this passage, like it's good when you're around other people. In the context of work, but really anywhere in life, community is good, especially as it relates to work. And then the third thing we see is in verse 13. We can have humility in our work that, that causes us to continue to learn and to take others' advice, listen to other people well. Verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth. It's a little bit of an uh, of a, of a illustration or story that Solomon's sharing here. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, the younger, right? I saw all the living who move under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. Verse 16, there was no end of all the people of all who have, he, he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after the wind. Here's what Solomon's saying. This is, this is more specifically in a leadership context, but the principle applies, right? So you had a guy who was old, who had all the kind of the skills and the knowledge to be to be a good king, but he stopped listening to people. He got set in his ways. He got, you know, just kind of old, and like he stopped listening, and he became a poor king. But then you have the young guy comes up. He was born poor, really shouldn't have been a king, but he seems like he was humble. He listened to other people. He rose to prominence and became king. And it seems like from the passage and the comparison, he is the good king. He's the benevolent king, right? But he also, it's really interesting, he has wisdom if you see in verse 16, there was no end of all the people in the pool he led. Like he had a large amount of, he had a large following, large, a lot of people looking to him. Yet then he says, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Even a king's time in the sun, even his, in his heyday, it, it's short. He knows there'll come a time when they don't love me. They're going to kick me out. I'm going to have to leave. I'm going to have to go away. So even in his acknowledgement that this is going to end, he shows humility and wisdom. And then Solomon adds here, as he does often, surely this is also vanity and striving after the wind. It's like, isn't it interesting, a good king to be, get put in place, things are going well, people are following, things seem right, and then a new group of people come in, and they don't like this king, and they push him out. And he's like, ah, there it is again. All is vanity and is striving after the wind. Hard to figure out, hard to understand, this is the world we live in. But what we can see here, for us at least, is we want people around us to, 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 to speak into our lives. We want to walk with people, do life with people, work alongside people, and listen to them so we can grow. So we, we hear critique well. We receive things well. We want to be humble leaders. We want to be humble employees so that we can grow. And we all know and we felt it, right? It's much easier to work with somebody with humility. And it's willing to learn. It's always willing to grow and take critique well. Okay? 
So what are some of the next steps we can take? So where do we go from here? You know, right? Solomon doesn't just give us a clear application here, but we know he's clearly laid out some wisdom here that we can take. I think the thing we can do is what I would say, take a relationship inventory of your life. Sort of start. Look at your close relationships, the people around you, the people that you want to invest in most, right? How is what you value in work or your activity affecting them? Are they healthier or less, less healthy because of what you do as a result of your activity? It's a good place to start, right? Is your motivation poor or does it, it doesn't exist and it's affecting coworkers, friends, and family negatively? How's your motivation affecting those relationships? Or is it godly motivation where coworkers, friends, and family are flourishing because of the work you do, or the activity you put in, or how you spend your time? And then take a look at that margin idea. Do you have the margin to be present with others? Yes, we have to work. Some of us have to work a lot. Some of us have to have, have work intense jobs, right? But we still have to be able to be present to those who are closest to us, those who depend on us. Those who we want to care for well. This is God's calling on our life. Or if you were to talk to those people, they'd say, yeah, they're not here. I don't know them. They're not around. They're at work all the time. Right? This is a little bit scary asking these questions, but I think this is, again, Ecclesiastes is not always a, a light book. He wants us to go to these places and ask hard questions. Now, I don't want to end this without talking about the gospel. Here's the benefit we have. Right? Solomon is living in a time period before Jesus, right? Like we live in a time period after the life, death, and resurrection, ascension of Jesus. So we get to look back at this, this wisdom that Solomon is giving us through the lens of the gospel. And there's good news when it comes to this wisdom Solomon is giving us, right? We look at the life, the death, and the resurrection. We look at all those things. We're going to see that Jesus helps us become the kind of people that Solomon wants us to be in this passage that, that leads to enjoyment and flourishing for ourselves and others in the context of work. So take his life. Start with his life, right? The life of Jesus, right? First off, he gives us the perfect example. We can't have a better example than Jesus in how he handled his time, his work, what he did, his activity, how he interacted with people while he had work to do. Always seem to need, need to be present with the right person at the right time. Not envious, content, kind of this almost otherworldly contentedness, which is the point, right? It was otherworldly, right? Jesus trusted the Father in everything. There wasn't this, like, um, unhealthy ambition, even though that he was the Savior of the world, right? He still remained under the, the, kind of under the Father while he was doing his ministry on earth. Right? And he did all of that perfectly, perfectly, which is why he would become the perfect sacrifice. Then at his death, Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself for people who can't do what Solomon wants them to do. And that's everyone in this room. Right? We, could, we could lay out our resume on how good we've done with work and life balance or how we've been a worker and a boss for employees and how we've treated people. We're going to fail. We're going to have dark seasons. We're going to have times when we show up at work stressed. Or lack of motivation or angry. We're all there. And Jesus died for the people who can't live up to this. Period. And that's good news. Right? And he also obviously died for everyone who, who, who professes to be a sinful human being. Right? right? He died for sinners like you and me. So if you're here in this room and you don't know Jesus, maybe this is, you come to church 
for the first time in a while, welcome. We're glad you're here. But I want you to know that Jesus died for sinners. Not just people who couldn't hack it in work, but he died for people who fall short of the glory of God. And the, the first step in coming to faith, coming to know Jesus, is admitting that you need help. Admitting that you need a savior. Admitting that you can't be the perfect boss. You can't be the perfect worker. You can't be the perfect mom or dad and have the perfect work and life balance and spend time with your kids while you're trying to make. You can't. So the, the first step in being becoming a follower of Jesus is realizing you don't measure up. And you can open your hands up and receive the grace and forgiveness that God offers in Jesus. And then we get to his resurrection. And his resurrection, right? And his resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit, he changes us into the kind of people who can do these things. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit to be able to be good employees, to work well, to have healthy relationships. It's actually possible. We don't have to walk around in our sin all day. We can actually be victorious in this area. We can do the right thing, right? We see that Jesus brings comfort to the oppressed in verse 1 that we looked at. He brings contentment to the envious in verse 4. He brings ambition to the lazy that we looked at in verse 5. He brings peace to the workaholic in verse 7. He brings humility to the prideful in verse 13, right? In his life, death, and his resurrection, Jesus brings his grace and his mercy and his empowerment through the Spirit to all of us in all of those areas. And we receive that by faith and, and by his grace. So here's what we need to do. We need to take inventory of our relationships. Again, that's the first place to start as they relate to work. But do this exercise through the lens of the gospel. Not to beat yourself up because you're going to fail. But through the lens of the gospel. And, and ask God for help as you see those things. Ask God for help. We call that repentance, right? Help me, God. Be the kind of person you want me to be in turn. Remember what Jesus' life, death, and resur resurrection accomplished for you in these areas. Solomon tells us that part of living a life of flourishing with Jesus, which is what a Christian should, should aim for, right? Flourishing with Jesus is to enjoy our life with others, to enjoy it, to have community, to have healthy relationships. And a big part of that enjoyment is how we handle work alongside these relationships. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for this book of Ecclesiastes, this um, often... Um, missed book, obscure book, in the, in, kind of in the middle of the Bible, I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful if I've gotten to, 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 to read and study this book, um, how, yes, it's unique, but there's so much wisdom packed into this book. And, and um, Solomon feels like he, he knows our culture so well when he's writing this book. And so I pray that we would receive these things. I pray that we would be honest as we reflect on our work in our relationships. But God, I pray that we would remember that there's grace and there's mercy and the good news of the gospel says, come. Come in your brokenness. Come in your, your failed attempts at being a boss, your, your, your laziness, your, 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 your overworking and maybe neglecting your family. God is begging us to come to him, all of us in this room. I pray those who know Jesus in this room would, would deepen their relationship with God as a result of this text in the gospel. I pray that those of you, those people in this room that don't know you, I pray that they would come to know you now. They would trust that your grace and your mercy in Jesus covers their sin. That Jesus took those to the cross and took on the wrath of God so sinful people like everyone in this room might have a way 
to get to you. And we're thankful for that. So help us. Help us. We trust that you're alive. We know your spirit is with us. Help us be the kind of people who work well, who treat people well, and who glorify you in the process. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.